You're listening to The Thesis with Daniel Kari. It seems like everyone's got an opinion about how best to play the crypto opportunity, but who's right? Through deep discussions with sophisticated investors, we'll explore the limitless possibilities of these new markets. I'm Daniel Kari. I'm a journalist, technology enthusiast, and previously a crypto fund manager. I've seen this industry inside and out, and if there's one thing I can tell you about the markets, it's that everyone has their reasons, everyone has their thesis. Mo Adams serves as Chief Investment Officer of Cypherpunk Holdings, an investment firm listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the ticker HODL, or HODL. The firm has holdings in the privacy-focused Wasabi Wallet and Samurai Wallet, among other cryptocurrency investments. Mo is also the CEO of BitAccess, a Canadian company pioneering products such as Bitcoin ATMs, blockchain-based publishing, and financial smart contracts. He holds an engineering degree from the University of Waterloo in Ottawa, Canada. Mo, thanks for joining us on the thesis. Pleased to be here, Daniel. Your portfolio for Cypherpunk Holdings is heavy on privacy. Why is privacy your focus? That's a great question. And I think really to answer that question, you got to go back to first principles. Uh, and so uh, myself, just like you, Daniel, we've been in this, this sector for a long time. I think we've been through a couple of cycles and uh, I, I got to say, like, when we were putting together Cypherpunk Holdings, we spent quite a bit of time really digging down on what is crypto for? Like, why are we doing this? What's the point? And to really go back to first principles on well, what's the value proposition of this sector? And so if you take a, a high level look at it, what is the value proposition for crypto or for Bitcoin? Is it a peer to peer payment network like the white paper mentioned, you know, way to do e-cash transfers? Or is it, you know, some type of a scarce asset where there's a finite supply of something and just because it's finite, it has some value. And because of that value, you can speculate on it. Have we built a better casino? Or is it, you know, something more closer to, to a mix of the two where you have like censorship resistance is also quite an interesting property of the peer-to-peer network. This is a decentralized network. And it is quite novel that Satoshi put together something that is so resilient and really can't be taken down. And so the conclusion of this analysis landed on privacy. Now, I'm sure that you were, you were in the space back then, Daniel. You remember what Coinbase was doing originally? Coinbase was not originally an exchange. It was actually pretty surprising when they launched one. Yeah, agreed. They were all about kind of like merchants. And I think that a lot of crypto companies at the time, we had our crosshairs on Visa and MasterCard. Back in 2013, those were the villains of the crypto industry. And we were like, you know, why are these guys charging 3% to process a credit card transaction? There's all these uh, counterparties involved. You know, what we should really do is cut those guys out. And that's why crypto exists. That's why Bitcoin exists. And and a lot of the activity at the time was on that. It was on micropayments. It was on remittances. All these interesting buzzwords were flying around. But if you look at the space today, you know, that's, that's pretty much all gone. Like, do you think that Bitcoin's a good payment currency, Daniel? No, it's really not. I actually don't see any cryptocurrency today that is, although hopefully maybe that will change at some point. I think that I at least spent a long time reflecting on that in that we really failed on the payment side. And so then if you think that we've failed on payments, what is the value proposition of crypto? Like, what are we left with? Because with payments, you know, I'm still not sure we'll ever get there. When you pay with a credit card, they don't charge you more. If you pay with Bitcoin, you probably are paying the same amount. You're not getting some discount. You know, you're not getting any insurance. You're not getting points. So without payments, what's left? 
Without payments, we've got scarcity and we've got censorship resistance. When you look at scarcity, a lot of assets are scarce. You can say like, you know, Apple as a stock, that's a scarce asset. There's only, only so many Apple shares out there. So of course they have a certain value. Uh, but the value of those are, are kind of derived from the underlying value of Apple in that Apple produces this vast array of products that people pay a lot of money for and they're profitable. But that doesn't really exist on, on crypto, right? Uh, you know, Bitcoin, it's really just scarce. But what is the actual value that comes out of that? And I'm not necessarily convinced that scarcity alone is a long-term valuable proposition. Well, it seems like you've deeply thought about the actual utility of cryptocurrency and you've kind of settled on censorship resistance as your investment theme. What does that mean, censorship resistance? Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, I think that it's probably the most novel thing I can think of that cryptocurrency has brought the world that doesn't necessarily already exist outside of the cryptocurrency industry. If you want to make a payment, there's a lot of payment networks out there that'll gladly make that payment for you. If you want to have a scarce asset, you can go buy gold, you can buy art. But realistically, I think that the, the zero to one technology and the real fundamental change for crypto is the decentralized nature of it leads to censorship resistance, which really means that it's a self-sovereign bearer asset. It's an asset that nobody can take from you. It's an asset that cannot be seized. It cannot be subpoenaed. It cannot be willfully taken from you. And that is an interesting property. I don't think the world has really ever seen something like that before. Even if you have gold in a vault, guys with guns can show up and, and probably try to take them from you. But I don't know they can necessarily force you to give up your private key to a Bitcoin address, especially if it's a multisig. And so as a censorship-resistant network, Bitcoin has actually brought new value into the world, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of debate of whether or not that's a positive or a negative value. And I'd be happy to debate on that subject, but it is something new and novel. And, and frankly, from a very high level view, when I look down at the sector after all these years about what real value have we brought to the world, I think I just land on censorship resistance. That's really all that we've done that wasn't being done before with other electronic payment networks. With this idea of censorship resistance, can you talk a little bit about your existing holdings in both Wasabi Wallet and Samurai Wallet, maybe you can explain what the value proposition you see in those investments and in any other investments you may have that I'm not aware about in privacy. Censorship resistance is really from our perspective, what is the underlying value of the asset? In that uh, if, we, if we go back to the analogy of Apple, where Apple creates a product that people pay a lot of money for and they earn a profit margin and that's their value, in our opinion, censorship resistance is the value of Bitcoin. And so all other value emanates from that censorship resistance. And it is quite difficult to maintain censorship resistance on the Bitcoin network today. And it's interestingly, one of the ways that you can actually earn reasonable revenue on your Bitcoin capital. And so when you look at the network as it is today, most of the activity is from institutions in that a lot of the Bitcoin transfers or Ethereum transfers are all from large regulated institutions transferring in between one and another. And while that's exciting and an interesting way to transfer uh, crypto assets, 
I just don't know if that really emanates from the, the point of censorship resistance. And so they're doing a whole bunch of interesting activity. I think it, it drives much more from speculation. But the people who are actually using Bitcoin for its value proposition tend to want censorship resistance. And censorship resistance really kind of emanates towards privacy in that if you want to be able to transact in a censorship resistant way, you effectively need to transact in a private way. A private way doesn't necessarily mean anonymous, but it does mean that only the parties involved in the transaction know who's involved in the transaction. And that's quite a difference. And I think that when you look at the uh, technologies we invested in, they are enabling people to transact privately on the Bitcoin network. And from our perspective, as I mentioned, that's the only valuable thing you can really do on the Bitcoin network. And so from our perspective, we're investing in the only valuable thing that is left to do on the Bitcoin network outside of just core speculation and expecting the number to go up. The use case here is not the desire to transact anonymously. It's just to shield the details of transactions. That's the privacy component you're talking about, right? It's precisely that. Uh, maybe I could try to paint a picture of where we may be in two to three years. If the sector continues on the path that it's on and there isn't investment in the privacy of the network. Recently, the Financial Action Task Force, also known as FATF or FATF, has put together a new set of guidelines. And so the Financial Action Task Force isn't itself a regulator, it's a supranational regulator. And most modern economies are members of the Financial Action Task Force. And typically when they make rules, countries are expected to follow them. And because cryptocurrency is such an international phenomena, it's interesting to see that the Financial Action Task Force was really the ones who came through and put together a set of rules that they expected just about every country on the planet to adhere to. And what they've effectively done is say, listen, cryptocurrency, it's cool that you have this decentralized network, but if you want to be integrated into the financial rails that currently exist today, you're going to have to play by the rules that the financial networks uh, are bound by. And in effect, it requires that whenever an institution sends a transaction on the Bitcoin network or any other cryptocurrency network, they are required to transmit effectively the identity of the party sending the transaction and receive in return from a second institution the name or identity of the receiving party. Without going too deep into the weeds, that isn't really possible on the Bitcoin network or any other cryptocurrency network for that matter that has any major usage. And so they're really asking us to build a dragnet of sorts to pass along a whole bunch of private information. And that may be valuable for anti-money laundering purposes, and I can understand why they did it. But what is interesting is that they consider that transfers to private wallets uh, so what most regular Bitcoin transactions are, where a person's in custody of it, are a high-risk transaction. And if you look at their updated guidance that just came out in September 14th, they mention that some countries may deem that transfers to private wallets are so high-risk that they should be barred in, in entirety. And that's a little bit of a concerning uh, notion, I think, for a lot of the people in the sector, in that if we're going to start barring people from transferring crypto assets from custodial platforms to personal wallets, well, what you're going to start to see emerge is kind of like two different cryptos. 
there's going to be two Bitcoins. There's going to be these Bitcoins that exist in the custodial world and have very well-defined origin and destination. And then you can have a whole bunch of this Bitcoin that exists outside of the custodial world. What happens with those Bitcoins is, is not really clear. Are they going to have the same value? Are they going to be uh, less valuable because they're not on custodial platforms? Or are they going to be more valuable? It's a concerning premise, I have to say myself. And so I think when you look at our investments, we're effectively investing to make sure that it remains possible for those non-fat of cryptos, uh, when I say fat of cryptos, I mean Bitcoins that are emanating from a custodial platform that is in, in full adherence with the Financial Asset Task Force regulations, that those non-fat of crypto coins, uh, whether they be Bitcoin or others, are indiscernible from each other. If they are not, what you're going to start to see is that increasingly custodial institutions are going to start barring the deposit and withdrawal of cryptocurrency into their platforms uh, because they'll be able to discern between different types of Bitcoins and where they came from using blockchain analysis. And it's just going to really destroy the fungibility of cryptocurrency as a whole. And so there's actually a lot of demand to make it so that you can make sure that all Bitcoins look the same, that there's no real way to tell the difference between one Bitcoin input and another Bitcoin input. And a lot of the investments we make are on that core technology and enabling it. And right now, it's actually a business model where you can earn revenue in compliance with the Financial Action Task Force regulations. Can you talk a little bit more into detail on your investments and how they coincide with what you're talking about? Because I think you painted a very good landscape, and I think that your experience gives you the ability to do that. And I think the next SIEG is just what investments you've made that you think can accomplish the goals that you're trying to achieve with this fund. Listen, we're not trying to invest in unregulated technologies or get around regulations, but there are very clear carve-outs in these regulations for non-custodial platforms, software developers, etc. And so a group of very intelligent and creative engineers have designed platforms that are in full compliance with these regulations, but that allow us to re-enable privacy on these networks. And so, for example, the Bitcoin network, in my opinion, being the most at risk, there are two companies, different approaches, but have launched products that enable both companies, consumers, institutions, whoever, to add privacy to their current Bitcoin holdings. And so those two companies are Samurai Wallet and Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi Wallet has designed a very novel desktop application that enables anybody to take their current Bitcoin holdings and in effect erase their history. What happens is in a non-custodial way, uh, you connect to the network via Tor to the Wasabi platform. You deposit your Bitcoins, but in a, a non-custodial way. So you deposit your Bitcoins into this wallet that's running on your desktop computer. And then Wasabi's server coordinates what is known as a coin join between you and about 100 other people who are running the wallet. And what happens is it kind of fuses all of the Bitcoins together and redistributes it back out to everybody. And in doing this, they enhance the privacy of the Bitcoins that you hold by kind of blurring the lines about whose Bitcoins are which. For those um, listeners who aren't really familiar, Bitcoin is a very transparent network. While people think it's uh, anonymous, 
it actually really isn't. It's quite trivial to track the flow of Bitcoins from one party to another. But with Wasabi does, it actually blends that entirely. And like I said, allows you to erase the history of your current Bitcoins. Uh, and so when somebody sees these Bitcoins, they look like Bitcoins that have just exited Wasabi Wallet. But anything prior to that is quite unknown. Samurai Wallet is the same? Samurai Wallet's designed a mobile wallet with uh, similar properties. Uh, I would say that Samurai's approach has been a little bit more to the consumer side. And so I won't go into the nitty gritty technical details, but you can start with small amounts of Bitcoins on Samurai Wallet. Uh, but their implementation is also slightly different or actually quite different, frankly. Sorry, they won't like me saying that. It is very different. But the implementation details are different. But Samurai's principally been focusing on the mobile experience. And so they actually have quite a big user base of people who want to be able to spend Bitcoins in person, but not have the person who's receiving funds from them know their total bank account balance. And that's a really, really cool product. And both of these businesses have designed business models that are in full compliance with the regulations, but allow them to earn revenue through providing this privacy-enhancing layer. Where does the revenue come from? Typically, what happens is when you join uh, into one of these coin join networks, I would best describe them, uh, you actually do have to pay a little bit of a fee. Uh, so similar to how you pay a mining fee when you send a regular Bitcoin transaction and that money goes to the miners, on these platforms, you'll send a little bit of a coordination fee. And that coordination fee goes to the companies. And it is important to note that these coordination fees are, are actually necessary to prevent spam and Sybil attacks from occurring on these networks. And so it's a really nice business model because it's a fee, but it's a necessary fee. And it's reasonably commensurate with the value that's being given to end users. Usually when a firm makes an investment in a company, it's the expectation that there will be user growth or revenue growth. How difficult is it for the average person to use these wallets? Uh, that's a great question. And I, I will preface this by saying both Wasabi and Samurai have seen exponential growth throughout the time that we've been investors. You know, it's still pretty hard, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of work to be done. I would say that Samurai Wallet, it's, it's a pretty good user experience, frankly. Like, you know, you install it on your phone, you set it up, you got to store some private keys somewhere and not forget them. And then you're off to the races. I think that it's still probably a little complicated for the regular user. I think that there's still a lot of work to be done on the privacy side to obfuscate a lot of the, the crazy inner workings of how these platform works and make it really, really simple for the, for the regular user. But I'd say that right now the target market is people who have quite a bit of crypto and want to be able to spend this crypto without, again, divulging their entire bank account balance whenever they buy a coffee. These sound like really sophisticated users. You know, you say that, but I will say this. There's a lot of them and there's a growing number. And I think that the user experience is only getting better. So I would actually encourage anybody who's listened to this and thinks it's interesting to, to try it out. These are free applications. It's not like you have to pay to download them or anything. You can just download it and give it a shot. I do think that Wasabi is a little bit more complex because it does surface the premise of UTXO selection, which is a, something that we're, not, we're never going to be able to cover on this one call. Uh, but I'd say the Samurai wallet is a pretty good user-centered wallet where it's just something on your phone, you use it, and it works. So those are two examples of investments your firm has made. 
And it sounds like what you're looking for is privacy, but with compliance. Would you say that's a fair assessment? I would say privacy that is legal. Uh, I would say that, that, that for sure. Um, I, I don't know if necessarily with compliance is how I would define it because these two companies specifically uh, have no compliance requirements because of how they were designed in accordance with the regulations. I do think that there is a big opportunity to invest in companies that provide compliance solutions in a private way in that we very much acknowledge that it is important to adhere to the law, adhere to regulations, and that involves collecting private information from customers, transferring that private information. But that's actually a pretty challenging thing to do. And to do it in a way that maintains user privacy to the utmost degree is a very big opportunity, in my opinion, especially in the European Union, where it's increasingly not clear which laws apply, whether it's a privacy law that applies or a financial regulation law that applies. I think there's a pretty big opportunity. We're definitely investigating opportunities in that space. Um, I suspect we'll probably make an investment reasonably soon. I'm glad you brought up Europe, actually, because I did want to talk about there's Europool has named privacy as a top threat. Did you see that? And what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I have seen it. And I, I can acknowledge why. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens on cryptocurrency networks. I don't think that any of us should deny that. I, I don't think the majority of bad stuff that happens on cryptocurrency networks is, is bad, but there's a lot of stuff that happens that we should be concerned about. Um, I think in that Europol report, they said something like 99% of transactions are fully legitimate, but about 1% of transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain may be emanating from a bad source. That's tiny. I, I agree it's tiny, but it can make a big difference to everyday people and everyday uh, companies. Uh, I think that ransomware, for example, is a very big threat. And I think that every cryptocurrency company that's been operating at scale has had to face this challenge that there are these threats out there. There are a certain number of companies that are selling solutions to law enforcement that enable law enforcement to get a certain level of visibility into regular cryptocurrency transactions that, that are not obvious to a regular cryptocurrency user, um, in that they can really trace the source and destination of funds throughout this long chain. And it, it's quite impressive how they do it. So they sell these solutions to law enforcement, and then other products come along that break those chains. And when that happens, law enforcement goes to this tool that they've been licensing and say, oh God, this privacy tool has come along and it's, it's made my job a little bit harder. And so then they list it as a threat. And, and I understand why they would do that. Uh, but I, I do think that maybe these analysis firms have done uh, law enforcement a disservice in selling them maybe a short-term product in that I think that the inevitability is that these networks will become increasingly private and fungibility will be maintained. And so it's really going to be on law enforcement to adapt their methods uh, with that new reality. I do think that there are ways to monitor these networks in a sufficient way to prevent nefarious activity. I suspect that law enforcement will eventually gain those capabilities, but that everyday users will be able to maintain that level of privacy that they expect. I want to ask you about privacy coins. For example, Zcash, Monero, et cetera. What are your thoughts about these networks that 
bake in privacy, I guess, so to speak? I'll say this. Um, I love them from a technology perspective because I think that, frankly, they solve what could best be described as a bug in the original Bitcoin implementation. And the bug being that it was, it was reasonably trivial to link inputs and outputs over a long period of time. And so I really like them. And we have actually made investments in Monero at Cypherpunk Holdings in the past. But I will say that as an investable asset, it's a little challenging because I think that as I go back to value, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that the majority of the price of crypto assets today is derived from their underlying value as much as it's from their speculative value. That's why you'll see us investing in companies that earn revenue in enhancing privacy as opposed to necessarily taking very large positions in privacy coins themselves, uh, simply because we think that a lot of the price movement of these privacy coins is reasonably short term and driven more by speculators. I think in the very long term, though, cryptocurrencies that maintain privacy will be the ones that are valuable, uh, simply because if fungibility is no longer uh, possible on certain cryptocurrency networks, price consistency will be impossible as well. And when I say that, I mean, if you can't be confident that accepting one Ethereum from somebody is actually going to be worth one Ethereum, you're very unlikely to accept it. And so it is quite important that fungibility is maintained on these cryptocurrency networks. And I think that privacy coins do a really good job of ensuring that. But you don't want to invest in the actual assets. You want to invest for equity. Is that my understanding? Well, we will occasionally invest in the underlying asset if we believe that uh, there may be a short-term price movement that is out of whack. But I'd say that most of our approach is to invest in enterprises that are able to earn revenue from enhancing privacy. What is a cypherpunk? Why do you call the firm cypherpunk holdings? This, this could be a very long conversation, Daniel. But to, to grind it down to a, a couple of sentences, the cypherpunks originated many years ago with a, with a general goal of maintaining privacy on the internet. And the Cypherpunk Manifesto was written, and a lot of really cool technology has emerged from the original Cypherpunk movement. A lot of the cryptography that we use today kind of has its roots in the Cypherpunk movement. And so I would describe a Cypherpunk as somebody who believes that privacy is a fundamental right and that maintaining privacy on the internet is one of the most important endeavors that we can aspire to right now, and that there's a constant battle on the internet to reduce privacy. And the internet without any privacy is going to be a very different place that I don't think many of us want to participate in. Why did you choose the ticker symbol that you have for your investment firm? I think that it's a kind of an homage to the original OGs in the crypto space. We've been in this industry for a long time. We've been in it for the reason of it being a really cool new technology and that we shouldn't be just speculating buy, sell, buy, sell, ticker go up. And so we really very much believe in the HODL thesis in that uh, we believe that Bitcoin is one of the most important assets of our generation. And we are a large holder of Bitcoin. Uh, we, we own a lot of Bitcoin on our balance sheet. It's our largest asset and we expect to hold it for a long time. So the HODL thesis is holding. <laughs> I would say that if, if we had to have a goal, and I have to watch how I say this because we, we are a publicly traded company, but I would love for HODL to outperform the price of Bitcoin. I think that there, it's very difficult to find an investment opportunity in the space uh, that outperforms Bitcoin. 
Um, and so you'll see a lot of our investments will be in opportunities that have high optionality on Bitcoin becoming more valuable or actually earn revenue in Bitcoin so that if Bitcoin increases in value, not only do our underlying assets increase in value, but the revenue being generated by our investments is in Bitcoin, which also becomes more valuable. What is something you have learned about the crypto ecosystem you didn't expect to when you first jumped in? You know, I got involved right out of grad school as an engineer. I did a, a master's in nanotechnology. I really genuinely believed that the best technology was what would win in the market. I think that that's actually not really the case in the sector right now. I think that there are a lot of really interesting technologies that are really just nobody knows about them. And there's a lot of really not good technology that has a lot of questionable value attributed to it right now. And so I, I think that one thing I learned is really just how much greed can drive a scarce assets price up. And I do fear that certain people are investing in the space just for the, the greed factor, as opposed to really thinking about it from a value proposition standpoint. So their thesis essentially is greed. I think that if we look at a lot of the prominent companies in the space today, and this isn't a knock on them, I'm just saying if we look at them, the vast majority of earnings, of revenue, is on trading fees. And those trading fees kind of emanate from trading one crypto to another or trading uh, one crypto to fiat and then in and out, in and out. And, you know, that's a good business model, right? Like, you know, you're selling shovels uh, to gold diggers. But I, I just have to question, is that really valuable? Is, is building another New York Stock Exchange really necessary? You know, the New York Stock Exchange is a pretty good exchange. Is it really that valuable to build a better casino if that's what we're building? I, I'm not sure. I think that you can make some short-term earnings, uh, but I think that at Cypherpunk Holdings and myself individually, I'm more of a long-term value investor. And so I, I like to invest in things that I think that have the underlying value. In that case, I think that cryptocurrency and its privacy implications are, is really valuable. You mentioned long-term. What do you think this is all going to look like in a decade? Oh, man. You know, Daniel, we've both been working in this space for almost a decade now. And I think that, you know, when we first met up many years ago, I don't know if either of us could have predicted where we are today. I mean, I remember when CoinMarketCap had two coins on it, and that was kind of crazy at the time. So what I can say for sure is I'm quite certain that Bitcoin will still be around and people will still be transacting on Bitcoin. I think that as long as there's two computers on the Internet, people will still be transacting on Bitcoin from a base layer. Otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. All right. Bitcoin will be around in 10 years. <laughs> uh, that's Mo Adam. He is the chief investment officer of Cypherpunk Holdings. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. And this is The Thesis. I'm Daniel Kari from Coindesk. You've been listening to The Thesis with Daniel Kari, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network and released on the new Coindesk Reports podcast feed. By subscribing to this one feed with your favorite podcast player, you'll get free access to six new shows from the editorial team at Coindesk, each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. Today's show was produced and announced by Adam B. Levine with music by Daniel Kari. Did you enjoy the show? We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. 
And stay tuned for Borderless on Thursday. Bitcoin is the first truly borderless money, and its story is one of global disruption. Join Coindesk reporters Nick Day, Anna Bidakova, and Danny Nelson as they discuss, dissect, and put in perspective the three most impactful recent crypto stories from around the world.